I have two more questions. Uh, let me say that uh, I was to answer two questions last Sunday evening, and I got so into the answer that it took the, the whole message. And um, uh, in that message, sometimes quest questions which are sort of simple questions uh, turn out to be deeper. And uh, in, in the answer uh, to those two questions, uh, I brought up two points which uh, w were known to the brethren and uh, which I believe in, but are not common points. Uh, the question was essentially what, what happens to a man who is saved in the Old Testament and uh, dies before the Lord Jesus Christ dies upon the cross, where, where does his spirit go? And uh, so uh, one of the answers that the brethren would give is that it go, he goes to Abraham's bosom, which is described in the 16th chapter of the book of Luke. However, even as I said that, I knew that Abraham's bosom, those words are presented once in the whole Bible, and once, and it's a verse in Luke. And so I wondered, uh, as I was giving the answer, whether I might not just be confusing. I don't know if you've ever heard a message on Abraham's bosom. It's not something that normally a, a, a preacher would stand up and preach about. Another verse that uh, was necessary to answer the question was a verse in uh, Ephesians 4 that the Lord Jesus Christ, as he ascended, he led captivity captive. That's a tremendously important verse in the Bible, but it's only found twice in all the Bible, Psalm 68 or Ephesians 4. And if you uh, have not studied those two chapters, then if someone is talking about leading captivity captive, uh, it may be that... Uh, uh, you really do not appreciate the answer. So uh, after my message tonight, if you have a question on Abraham's bosom or leading captivity captive, uh, I'd be glad to uh, discuss that matter with you further. As far as uh, the question as uh, why can't we answer all the questions, uh, basically it's because I think the Bible is a book of redemption. And uh, God pretty well answers the questions again and again and again and again in redemption. But uh, he doesn't answer a lot of other questions. For example, in the Bible, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And he talks about how the heavens are created, how the earth is created, and uh, all that was created during those uh, seven days. And after he gets through with one chapter, God barely says anything else about creation. But about redemption, you will read a hundred times through the Bible, a thousand times through the, old, through the Bible, that Jesus Christ died for your sin. And that is the message that God wants to get through. Uh, the two questions uh, that I have is, uh, one... Uh, is uh, uh, cloning uh, spiritual, is cloning spiritual. Here we are, mankind is just on the verge of cloning, and uh, it's a scientific thing, it's a technical thing. And uh, the question would be, uh, 
is it compatible with the Bible? And I think that if you ask Christians, they would say, no, cloning is not compatible with the Bible. Uh, putting, uh, producing bodies on a production line basis is really not the way that man comes into being. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that God created man in his own image, in his own image. And uh, uh, let us, that's Genesis 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image. And he created man to be the Lord of the earth. Man was to have dominion over all the earth. And uh, even as you go through the Bible, if you turn with me to... um, the book of James, chapter 3, which is a New Testament book. Here we are going towards the end of the Bible, and we've been all through the sin of man and the falling of man. But in James, chapter 3, uh, uh, which is, of course, in the New Testament, and uh, verse uh, 8, uh, James writes this, No man can tame the tongue, It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With our tongue we bless our God and Father, and with our tongue we curse men who have been made in the image of God. And so when you get down here at the end of the Bible, after speaking about all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but James comes out with the fact that man is made in the image of God. And God gives man... Authority, great authority over all the earth. Adam was no caveman. Adam was the Lord of the earth. Somebody says, well, I, I know history has found men living in caves uh, in olden times. Sure they were. Uh, sure they did. You can go to New York City and find a man sleeping in a cardboard box, but he wasn't born there, you know. He fell there. Adam was created perfect in the image of God to be the ruler over all the earth. And through sin, Adam lost that position. Look for a moment at the book of Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. As to how noble uh, Adam was, uh, it's... um, um, Hebrews chapter 2, it's quoting uh, the Psalms. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Of all that God created upon the earth, he pays special attention to man. Or the son of man, that you take care of him. When it says the son of man, it does not mean the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, of course, that was his title. But this verse just means... God is especially caring of men, and he's especially caring of the children of men. You made man a little lower than the angels. These, these verses were read this morning at breaking of bread. You crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Think of the nobility of that. I mean, man is noble. Man is created in nobleness before the Lord. And in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. And so God's plans for man were very noble. Cloning does not bring along this nobleness. And uh, therefore I feel that clothing, uh, cloning 
is just a, a scientific means to try to reproduce uh, the organs of the body, which is a, uh, it's a remarkable medical thing. But as far as entering into the, the plans that God has for man, uh, I think uh, that is uh, not compatible with uh, Bible truth. The Son of God becomes man. The Son of God, when he creates the heavens and the earth, is the Spirit. When he comes down to this earth to die for my sin, in order to die for my sin, he becomes a man. And after he dies for my sin on Calvary's cross, he does not cease to be a man. He does not uh, uh, rid himself of his body. He doesn't go back and become the Son of God who is a spirit. He remains in the body. When you see the Lord Jesus Christ, you will see a man. When the church is married to the Lord Jesus Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb, you'll be married to a man who is the Son of God. And when we give that verse that was quoted often last week at the breaking of bread, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When you read the word Jesus, you're talking about a man. The name of the Son of God in heaven is not Jesus. Jesus is the name given to him when he becomes a man and he will never lay that aside. And uh, when you speak about a man in First Thessalonians in chapter 5 and verse 23, it says that the God of peace himself will sanctify us completely and my whole spirit will be sanctified, my soul will be sanctified, and my body will be sanctified. God is a trinity, man is a trinity, body, soul, and spirit. But clothing, cloning just reaches out to the body. Uh, how do you, how do you uh, sanctify a, how do you clone a spirit? How do you clone uh, my spirit? You know, when God created Adam, he created his body out of the dust of the earth. But to put the spirit within him, God breathed into his mouth. And so I, I just think that clothing falls far short of the nobleness that God has for man. Now, one of the, uh, one of the great um, truths that is coming on us is that people are paying money uh, that as they die, they are kept in liquid nitrogen, you know, preserved until the scientists of today can figure out a way to totally clone them so that they can come back out and, uh, and uh, walk this earth and have a life again, you know. And uh, that's what they believe. I think it's far easier to be a Christian and to believe that when I die, the Lord is going is to res resurrect my body. It will be like unto his glorious body, and so shall I be with him forever. But the problem is when you die, your spirit leaves, doesn't he? Uh, absent from the body is present with the Lord. You know, when you die, your spirit leaves. So if they take your dead body and they hang it upside down in nitrogen just to preserve it until someday someone might awaken it, 
uh, scripturally, the spirit is out of that body, right? Whether you're lost or saved, the spirit leaves the body, and then there is a uh, judgment of the uh, uh, just and the judgment of the unjust. So I think that clothing, uh, cloning um, produces many more uh, questions than answers. And, uh, but I, I think that cloning is attractive to people who do not believe that God is our creator. But to a person who believes that God is our creator, then uh, I think um, you say you were created in the image of God and that Jesus Christ came and died for you. The second is, are there different uh, 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 judgments in the, in the eternal judgment? And uh, the answer is yes. Uh, but let me first give you a verse as far as the eternal judgment. The overall question of the eternal judgment is Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15. Revelation 20, verse 15. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is a hard verse. Not hard because you don't understand it. Hard because you do understand it. And people don't preach on it a lot. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast. You know the word cast means thrown. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life God throws him into the lake of fire. The ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind uh, driveth away. So that's the overall judgment, but there, within that, there's a uh, difference of judgments. Look at uh, Luke. Um, Luke uh, chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And uh, the Lord is um, speaking about uh, men who are responsible, all men are responsible to serve him. And uh, in Luke chapter 12, he speaks about a servant who is, should be waiting for the master, but is not in Luke 12, 45. If that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the men servants and the maiden servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two. I mean, that's pretty severe, isn't it? He will cut him in two and uh, appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. I mean, this man is given a, a very severe judgment. And that servant, uh, this is still the same servant, verse 47, that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. Now, this is, this is the worst crime of all in the sight of God that if you know the master's will, if you know God's will, if you understand it, if you sit here and understand the gospel message that God gave his son to die for you, and it is clear to you, and you turn it down, see, that is the worst judgment. 
That is the worst judgment. What follows after that is, he who did not know, yet committed things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. So there are many people who, as a result of indifference or ignorance, are not really going to get the gospel straight in their mind, or they're not even going to bother coming into a place such as this to hear the gospel. And if they're not written in the book of life, they are cast into the lake of fire. But their judgment is not as severe as the person who knows. You know, in the Bible, if you truly know the truth, and do not accept it. The Bible has a special word for that, and that word is apostasy. The apostate. The apostate who who sneers, as it were, in the face of God. Yes, I understand all this, that you gave your son to die for me, and so, but I'll have none of it. Then the, the apostate is in for the worst judgment of all. Let me just uh, give you a few words, a few verses that I have with regard to setting goals for the new year. And uh, the uh, verse that I'm, the uh, subject that I'm going to speak on is uh, set your goal for the new year to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, really, truly follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, some of the verses, I hope, will be interesting to you. And uh, some of the verses I have taken uh, to my heart, and I really want to try to live these verses in this coming year. Let's start with the verse in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. So you run that race, that race of life that's before you. You run it looking unto Jesus. He is your target. He is your standard. I mean, Boulevard is a wonderful place to come and worship the Lord, but your standard is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, just to make that a little clearer, look for um, a moment at First Timothy chapter three. First Timothy chapter three. I mean, ideally, a a church will have the same standard as the Lord Jesus Christ, but sometimes the church does not. And so, if you want to be sure of your standard, take the Lord Jesus Christ as your standard. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and uh, verse 15. Paul writes to Timothy, if, I'm, if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, uh, which is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of the, of the truth. You know, the Bible never says that the church is the truth. It never says that. Uh, I know that's a common teaching upon the earth of different denominations. The church is the truth. But the Bible does not say that. The Bible says the Lord Jesus Christ is the truth. And the scripture says of the church, the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. 
In other words, here is the truth, and then I hold up the truth. I build a pillar under it. I establish a foundation under it. And that's the purpose of the church, to hold up the truth. The purpose of Boulevard Chapel here is uh, not to say that you are the truth, but to hold up the truth so that people in the neighborhood can say that can see that Jesus Christ is the truth. The Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So the church is not the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ is the church, is the truth. And we run that race that is set before us looking unto Jesus. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And he says in verse 1, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. Paul says in verse 1, I want you to consider me as a servant of God. And then I want you to consider me as a steward that God has entrusted, a, a, he says, entrusted with the mysteries of God. Paul was entrusted with the whole mystery of the church. And so Paul says, I'm a servant of God. I'm a steward of God. And he says in verse 2, it's required of a steward to be found faithful. Now, verse 3, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. You know, he's not speaking disrespectfully to the Corinthians. He's not doing that. And he's not saying, I don't care what you think about me. He's not saying that. He does care what they think about him. As a matter of fact, if you read 2 Corinthians, you find out how very much Paul does care what they think about him. What Paul is saying here is that you are not the one who's going to judge my ministry, that my ministry is going to be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. Look for a moment at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3. It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, or by any human court. There's no human court that's going to judge my ministry. In fact, I do not even judge myself. It is not for me to judge my ministry. Look at the middle of verse 4. But he who judges me is the Lord. He who judges me is the Lord. And that's a good thing for a Christian to line up in his mind. That in the end, the one who is going to determine the value of your Christian life is Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus. In Romans 14, it says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so it just makes sure, it makes sense to get things in its proper order and to say, uh, yes, I can... Uh, I can um, uh, um, be praised by my brother or I can have a high standing uh, among the uh, in the fellowship in the church but the important thing is how does the Lord judge my life the one who judges me is the Lord and that is the one that Paul went uh, is trying to uh, serve 
Look at the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians was the last book that Paul wrote to a church. He wrote it, he was in a Roman prison, and he was soon going to be executed. And this is the last book he writes to a church. The last book, period, that he writes to anybody is to Timothy. And that's Second Timothy. Paul then is very close to death there. Last Sunday morning, we said the first book he wrote was First Thessalonians. And it's a real help when you read First Thessalonians. If you realize this was his first book, and in every chapter, he mentions the coming of the Lord. Here into a church, church at Philippi, another Greek church, he's writing his last book. And uh, he is telling us about the things, his priorities in his life. He's very close to death. His life, he's about, he's in his 60s. He's been a Christian for a little over 30 years, but he's pointing out those priorities which define his Christian life. Notice in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, I want to know him. I want to know Jesus Christ. You could say, well, Paul, you knew him. You've known him for 30 years. He doesn't even say, I want to know him better. He says, I want to know him. You know, that's my highest priority. I want to know him and I want to know the power of his resurrection. He's not saying there, I want to be raptured in the rapture. He says, I want to know what it is to walk on resurrection ground. As the Bible describes, a new creation in Christ Jesus. Wouldn't it be wonderful as a Christian before we die to just walk on that kind of ground, really to be filled with the spirit, uh, to see what it's like. For once in our life, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, and so on. And to realize the fullness of the blessings and the power and joy that goes with a person who walks truly with his Lord. In verse 12, he says, I haven't attained this. He's getting close to death. He still hasn't done it. And uh, or I'm not perfected, but I press on. I still am going to try for this, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. You say, why did Christ die for you? Well, he didn't want to see you go to hell. Yes, I mean, that's it uh, in a way. <laughs> but there's a lot more to it than that, you know. Oh, I'm saved by Christ. And I'm not going to hell. Yes. And in addition, I'm a son of God and an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And when the Lord comes, I'm going to be glorified with Christ. And when the Lord uh, judges the world, I will reign with Christ. You know, there's a lot more to Christianity than not going to hell. And Paul is saying, I want, to, I want to experience all that the Lord Jesus had in mind when he saved me, that I might not just be a babe in Christ, but that I might grow to full stature as a godly man and truly serve my Lord. And so uh, he says in verse 13, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do... So Paul has his priorities down to one, you know. 
I mean, you and I, we have a list of priorities. But when you get to over 60, over 60 is old in, uh, in the Bible. Uh, when you get to over 60, Paul narrows it down to one. This is my one thing. I, uh, forgetting those things which are behind, if they were good, I say, praise the Lord, but I'm moving forward. If they were bad, I say, I repent of those things, but I'm moving forward. Forget those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 15, Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. Paul says, if you're a mature Christian, if you're really serious about Christianity, then you'll agree with me that this is what my life should be. And uh, we face a new year if the Lord does not come. I can either pretty well muddle around and waste the year with regard to Christian growth, or I can really set my mind that I am going to seek to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and he will be my highest priority. Now, you know, uh, when we serve the Lord, we say, well, he has saved me exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. So if the Lord asks us to do something, we're not going to charge him to do it, right? We're not going to gripe about it. We're going to say, Lord, whatever you want, whatever I can do, I am going to do. And uh, there's just a very fresh excellent example of that in the Bible, which in this year might just perk you up. Second Samuel chapter 23. It's about David. We spent the morning talking about David and here we are back on David. It even mentions the, the cave of Dullam uh, once again. Second Samuel and chapter 23. And uh, look at verse uh, verse 14. Uh, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 14. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was in Bethlehem. The town of Bethlehem. The Philistines had made that their camp. That was where their strength was, and David was seeking to defeat the Philistines. By the way, the only one in all the Bible who absolutely defeats the Philistines is David. I mean, the best thing you can do this year is make David your king. Make David your king. And those uh, habits of the flesh that you cannot break, if Christ rules in your heart, you will have triumph over that. David was in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was where David was born. It was where David grew up. And David said with longing, now he's not giving instructions to anybody. He says, oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. David said, I just long for a drink of Bethlehem water. And three of David's soldiers, three of his mighty men, 
They just heard David say that and they picked up their spears and they broke through the camp of the Philistines and they drew water from the well of Bethlehem which was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. I mean, that would be something, you know. And they didn't charge him for that. (laughs) And they didn't uh, say, now you owe me something for that, you know. I mean, you have the kind of heart I mean, whatever Mary says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. He says, oh, I wish I had a drink from the well in Bethlehem. Bang! They're going to go out and get that water for David. And uh, that's the way we should respond as well. Uh, When David gets the water, he doesn't feel worthy to drink it. He says, the sacrifice that these men put forth and so David pours the water out on the ground. He cannot, he appreciates the effort of the men so much that David just pours it out upon the ground. You know, uh, it, turn back to Philippians. Paul has a verse that speaks about his life as an offering for the Lord. Uh, We say this is just at the very end of Paul's life, and he says in chapter 2 and verse 17, Philippians 2, 17, Yes, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. At the Apostle Paul, he could view his life, not just the life of service, but a life of sacrifice. You know, the drink offering was one hen. That's like a quart of something, a hen of wine. And you would pour the drink offering on top of the sacrifice, like the burnt offering that is on the altar, and you would pour the drink offering on it. And it was also a sweet savor unto the Lord. And at the end of his life, Paul says that my life has just been one offering poured out in sacrifice to the Lord. And I think a lot of Christians uh, in their lives, in my life, we fall short of that. You know, we don't look as our life truly as living as a living sacrifice to the Lord. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul writes, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice Uh, unto the Lord, wholly acceptable unto the Lord, which is but your reasonable service. Now look at this in Philippians. Paul is a prisoner in in the prison, in the Roman jail. And he says in chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. So he's in the cell, he's chained in the cell, but everybody in that jail knew why Paul was in that cell. I mean, Paul's testimony just went right out of those bars and so on. And then he says uh, in verse 14, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now there was a church, a Christian church, at Rome. 
in the Bible, there is no church of Rome. There is no church of Rome in the Bible. There's a church at Rome. There's a church at Ephesus. There's a church at Corinth. There's a church at Colossae. But there's no church of Rome. There's a church at Rome. And these Christians who were in that church, they came to the conclusion, they said, look, brothers, Paul is in the prison. He can't get out. He can't preach in the marketplace. It's time for us to go down to that marketplace and take up the slack. Eventually, you know, sometime in your life, you reach that point too, where you're going to have to say, instead of coming here and sitting down and enjoying the meetings and enjoying happy fellowship, it comes time to say, yes, and I have to pick up the slack too. I have to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. Paul is locked up. We're going to do it. And so they went down to preach it. Then he says in verse 15, some preach Christ even from envy and strife and some from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. In verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and uh, will rejoice. Now, this is, Paul is teaching us an important lesson here. The time had come for the brothers in Rome to go out and preach the word of God. Some sincerely went out and they said, look, Paul cannot preach. I'm going to preach. And I'm going to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I'm going to do the best I can. And others who were Christians They said, yes, and I'm going to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And at last, there's a little bonus for me because someone is going to hear me. Because I'm going to have my place. Because somehow now people are going to nod their heads when I speak, you know, a little something for me. Some preach Christ out of selfish ambition. You know, uh, look for a moment at Philippians chapter 2 and verse um, 19. Paul says, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. I also may be encouraged when I know your state, for I have no one like-minded. He says, I don't have another man like Timothy. I mean, that's high praise if you think of it I have no one like minded who will sincerely care for your state for verse 21 verse 21 is the one you've got to underline in your mind for all seek their own not the things which are of Christ Jesus all Christians seek their own and that is That's something if I can avoid. That's something if you can avoid. Yes, we're going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but not for what's in it for me. Not for, well, now I'm going to get a little praise out of this too. I'm just going to do it sincerely, just like those three soldiers went and they got the water and they brought it back to David. 
and there was going to be, they didn't worry about any reward for themselves. Selfish ambition. Look at uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Nothing. You know, are you an elder? Then don't, don't let that raise you up in, in a sense. Are you a speaker? Then don't use your words to magnify yourself while you're preaching the gospel. Do you teach the Bible? Then teach the Bible and do whatever you do for the glory of the Lord. And if you stand up on a Sunday morning at breaking of bread, the only reason you should have for standing up is to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Honor him and let nothing be done for selfish ambition. The trouble is, selfish ambition is deep in our heart, you know. It's there. As a matter of fact, the world will say selfish ambition is good, you know. I mean, if you want to hire somebody for your job, you want someone who will work hard, who is going to get ahead, who is going to smash through the obstacles, who is going to win the prize no matter what, you know. But Christians are not that way. Christians are to be leaders. Christians are to be victorious. But Christians are to do what they do. The Bible tells us in Colossians, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Do it with all your heart unto the Lord. Turn to the book of Galatians for a moment. The book of Galatians. And uh, the book of Galatians chapter 5. And... um, And verse 22, you read about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. No selfish ambition. I mean, if you're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit does not lead you into selfish ambition. Look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19. Now the works of the flesh. You and I know how easy it is for the flesh just to overcome us, right? Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. The things I would not do, those are the things I do. And the things I would do, those are the things that I do not do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this condemnation? He's not crying out for salvation. He's saved. He's a saved man in an unsaved body and the body is winning. And that isn't right. My body is unsaved, but the spirit should be winning. I should be walking in the spirit instead of walking in the flesh. Galatians 5.19, the works of the flesh are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, Uh, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions. There it is, right in the things of the flesh. Right in the things of the flesh. It's a hard thing to divorce. But when you serve the Lord, serve Him truly. Serve Him truly. And you say, yeah, but then somebody might not recognize me. 
But you know, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the Lord said uh, to Eli, the high priest, that the Lord just simply said to Eli, him that honoreth me, I will honor. And I will tell you, if God, if God decides that you are a person who truly serves his son, and he looks down and he says, this man honors my son, and I am going to honor him, then you will be truly honored with an honor that comes from the Lord. Well, um, I think it's time for me to stop. Look, uh, let me close then just by reading some verses in Second Corinthians chapter, Second Corinthians um, chapter 10, Second Corinthians chapter 10. There's much more you could say here about selfish ambition, but I'm sure you understand the point. When we serve the Lord, serve him, serve him. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Paul says this, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Paul was not like that. Don't you be like that either. Don't you be like that. Don't compare yourself. How am I doing next to my brother? It's how am I doing as far as the Lord is concerned? What does the Lord think about my doing? Notice in verse 18. It is not he who commends himself who is approved, but it is whom the Lord commends. That's what you want to do. You want to please the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 17, you read, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. You know. Uh, if you look down at the bottom of the page, you find that that's taken from an Old Testament verse, Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 24. And uh, let me just close with the reading of that word. He that glories, let him glory in the Lord. Jeremiah 9 this is a great verse just to take you through the new year. Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. Our precious Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and not only our Savior, but our example too. And help us, each one of us, to run the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. He is our standard. 
He is the one that we live to please. Paul could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Help us to leave ourselves out of it and to do what we do just for the glory of the one who gave his all for us. For we are not our own. We are bought with a price. We just pray that this may be a profitable year of service for each one of us. In his name, amen.